0: Via, Jerusalem. ...concerning the way and expedition to Jerusalem. Jesus, a life, a ...unheard of until these days, and greatly to be wondered at. Many times, with longing for that same expedition and for offering prayer there, was I fired up. Minime impedimenta. Intentioni mei. Yet being unable to do so because of diverse impediments given to the effecting of my intention. With rash daring, I decided to commend to posterity at least some of the things which were made known to me by listening to those who had been there and from their reports so that even thus, not in idleness, but as if I were on the journey, if not in body, then with all my heart and soul in unison with them, I should endeavor to carry out this task. Thus, of labor and misery, of reaffirmed faith, of the robustness of the princes and the other men's good concord in the love of Christ. How they left their homeland, kinsmen, wives, sons and daughters, cities, castles, lands, and estates, and all the sweetness of this world, left settled things for the unsettled. And in the name of Jesus, exile did they seek. How, with a strong hand and robust army, the journey to Jerusalem they made. Episcopi, bishops, abbates, abbots, clerici, clerics, monaki, monks, laiki, nobilissimi. then the most noble laymen, soro, regno, oru, principes. princes of different domains, ulmus, and all the common people as many sinful as pious men, adultery, adulterers, omitidae, murderers, ures, thieves, perluri, perjurers, perdones, robbers, that is to say, every sort of people of Christian faith. we indeed, even the feminine sex, led by repentance, all flocked joyfully to this journey. Hello, and welcome to History of the Outremer, episode 2.20. Every sort of people of Christian faith, indeed, even the feminine sex. A quote from our old friend Albert of Aachen, and a line which sounds vaguely like a cult slogan. When you start talking about the actual people that participated in the First Crusade, it's impossible to not start thinking of it like a cult. We already talked about the Kool-Aid back in episode 2.7, and we're going to be going back to that line of thinking today. Because today, we are taking a look at the social makeup of the First Crusade, on the eve of the Siege of Nicaea. My apologies for the delay on this episode, as you can see, it's a bit of a long one, and here at the Ultramar household, we got hit with the flu. Turns out a couple years of lockdown absolutely cripples the immune system. I did also fall a bit behind on my scheduling in general, so unfortunately our next episode might also be a bit late. Hopefully, I can get back on track soon enough. Now, we've talked about the big boys, the princes. Well, Godfrey of Bouillon and Bohemond each got two episodes to themselves each. So now, we're going to try to get a more holistic view, looking at the classes of people beneath them. We've got a lot of questions to answer today, centering around the different orders of this army, the knights and the commoners, as well as the question of social mobility in this era. And we'll also have to tackle the riddle that constantly bedevils both modern historians and the nightclub scene. Where are the ladies at? But before all of that, we need to talk about our first question. How many people are we talking about here? As with many of our later questions, to answer this one, we're going to need to interrogate our sources. Now it's often taken for granted that medieval writers were not only terrible at estimating population numbers, but that for some of them at least, accuracy didn't even matter. There was more weight given to the symbolic importance of certain numbers, often connected to biblical allusions. But it's not like these writers were stupid or incapable of separating allegory from reality. In fact, critiquing overestimations of the amount of people in this army of the cross goes right back to contemporary writers in the first decades of the 12th century. For example, Fulcher of Chartres, who wrote an eyewitness account, famously stated that 6 million crusaders went east. And this number was heavily criticized by Guibert of Nogent. One of the monks who made his own version of the Gesta Francorum. As Guibert was finishing up, he appears to have received a copy of Fulcher's work, and he appended to the end of Book 7 of his work a little bit of a commentary and some data that he pulled from Fulcher's history. Quote As we were about to put an end to the body of the present history, we discover, with the aid of the author of the world, that a certain Fulcher, a priest of Chartres, who had for a long time been the chaplain for Baldwin at Edessa, had spread word, in a manner different from ours, about a few other things that were unknown to us, and these were erroneous and in rough language. We decided to include some, though certainly not all, of this material in these pages. Since this same man produces swollen, foot-and-a-half-long words, and pours forth the blaring colors of vapid rhetorical schemes. I prefer to snatch the bare limbs of the deeds themselves, with whatever sackcloth of eloquence I have, rather than cover them with learned weavings. End quote. Fucking shots fired. Guibert was not a fan of Fulcher's writing, to put it lightly. Nevertheless, he then goes on to throw in some details from Fulcher's work often criticizing it, and finally he comes to the topic of numbers. After recounting a battle, he says, quote, Unless I am mistaken, my priest says that they cut to pieces 100,000 men. But I fear that the man is wrong in offering such a number, because it is the case that he is eager to offer such guesses elsewhere. For example, he dares to estimate that those who set out for Jerusalem numbered 6 million I would be surprised if all the land this side of the Alps, indeed if all the kingdoms of the West, could supply so many men. Since we know for a fact that at the first battle before the walls of Nicaea, scarcely 100,000 fully equipped knights are reported to have been present. And if he was concerned with including all who had gone on the journey, but who died on land and on the sea, of sickness or hunger, in the various regions through which they passed they still would not amount to such a great number of men. End quote. So, medieval writers were indeed capable of criticizing ridiculous numbers. Guibert certainly was. In this vein of thinking, historian Jean Flory questions the habit of assuming that all the numbers given by the First Crusade contemporaries are entirely untrustworthy. In chapter 19 of Pierre l'Armite et la Première Croisade, he asks two questions. One... Les nombres sont-ils symboliques ou allegoriques? Are the numbers symbolic or allegorical? And two. Les nombres sont-ils fantaisistes? Are the numbers fanciful? Clory's book is in French, so these quotes are translated on the fly by yours truly. He writes, quote, Are the numbers symbolic or allegorical? The symbolic value of numbers is evident in the Middle Ages. It was therefore tempting to attribute a symbolic significance to the evaluations of the chroniclers. This is what some historians sometimes do. The arguments in favor of this thesis are weak. In effect, one does not find in the Chronicles of Crusades any of the major symbolic numbers, which come mainly from the Bible. Flory continues, Are the numbers fanciful? Did the chroniclers use the numbers without real reference to objective reality? To find out, it was necessary to systematically record all the numbers mentioned and to study their statistical distribution. In the case of a realistic use of numbers used to express real or presumed real facts, this distribution should not be random. It would be random if the numbers were used randomly. There are indeed in this field well-established statistical laws. End quote. Flory then does an exhaustive overview of the numbers, with lovely little bar graphs of their distributions and mathematical mumbo-jumbo. He finds that while numbers in the songs of Jongleurs, like the Chanson d'Antioche, were pretty random, with the exception of a few outliers, the Crusade Chroniclers, well, their numbers seem to have not been random. This doesn't necessarily mean they were accurate, though. As Flory puts it, quote, the realism of the chroniclers in their use of numbers does not, of course, prove their accuracy. It does, however, lead us to take these numbers seriously. In using them, the chroniclers really intended to inform us, and we must take this into account. End quote. Fleury also astutely points out that even in our modern day, eyewitness estimates of crowd numbers are notoriously suspect. Quote, These evaluations are obviously suspect in our eyes because of their discrepancies, and even more so because of their very magnitude. However, such discrepancies are not abnormal. On the contrary, it is the far too great concordance of the figures mentioned in the various sources that should make them suspect in our eyes. It probably reflects a dependency. The chroniclers of the Middle Ages, even if they were present on the spot, were, moreover, ill-prepared to evaluate such masses of humans. They had not received, like us, an intellectual formation based on mathematics. They did not live in a society dominated by the figure and by the statistic. They did not have the technical means, which we have, to evaluate the crowds, to count, to index. Moreover, their mindset did not push them to do so. And yet, are we, in spite of all these advantages, able today to evaluate with more precision such gatherings? No! In spite of the high critical sense that we believe to have reached in the search for scientific accuracy, and in spite of the techniques that we have at our disposal, we know hardly any better how to translate by use of a reliable figure the numerical importance of a very large crowd. A few examples will suffice to prove this. One may remember the great demonstration which a few years ago gathered in Paris, the supporters of private education, which they considered threatened. It was then evaluated at two or three hundred thousand people by some observers. At one million by others. That is to say, a variation of one to three, even one to four. On February 3, 1991, a demonstration took place in Rabat to protest against the bombing of Iraq by the West. The crowd was, I can testify, immense. European journalists estimated it to be between 100 and 3,000 people. Most of the Moroccan newspapers of governmental tendency spoke about 7,000 people. The opposition newspapers went as far as 1 million souls. Again, there is a variation of 1 to 10. Last example. In Moscow, a demonstration in favor of Boris Yeltsin gathered together, according to the journalists between 50,000 and 500,000 people, that is to say, a variation this time from 1 to 10. Can we really, therefore, hold medieval observers responsible for giving a more precise evaluation of the Crusaders as a whole when they had no way of verifying its adequacy? End quote. Fleury's book is from 1999, so I love his very 90s references for mass crowds. Still, he's not the only historian to point out that, as a species, we really haven't improved on this whole counting large quantities of people thing. Historian John France in Victory in the East, published in 1994, presented an exhaustive review of the numbers, and also included an illustrative anecdote regarding the challenge of coming to an exact number, much like Floris, Quote, It is often said that medieval people were not good at numbers. It was an essentially local world in which large gatherings were uncommon and therefore impressed themselves unduly upon the imaginations of participants. Literacy was relatively rare, and numeracy even rarer. But the fact is that most people, in most eras, are pretty bad at estimating large numbers of people. I recall one large demonstration in which I participated in Hyde Park in the summer of 1982, for which the organizers claimed an attendance of 300,000 and the police suggested 60,000, a discrepancy of positively medieval proportions. Of course, politics has something to do with such estimates. The police, as the guardians of law and order, tried to play down such events, while the organizers have the opposite tendency. Just such political considerations entered into the crusaders' own estimates. End quote. France and Flory are both entirely in the right here. Imagine you had to estimate the amount of people at a concert without any information about the venue's capacity, just eyeballing it. Next time you're at a large event, try it with a few friends and see how close your estimates are comparing them. So then, how should we treat the source material here? Well, to a certain extent, I agree with Flory's take. He provides a summary of his approach to the sources that reads, quote, We must take the numbers provided for what they are. When they apply to such huge crowds, beyond the eye, the mind, the understanding, only the order of magnitude remains valid, to a certain extent. All the chroniclers agree on this point. It is a matter of hundreds of thousands. We must take this into account. Instead of rejecting with disdain global indications which, in spite of their uncertainty, do not deserve our condescending contempt our own inability to properly quantify large crowds of people should encourage us to be humble and indulge the numerical indications of the chroniclers. End quote. Fleury's perspective here leads him to the conclusion that the army, as it stood in early June of 1097, was between 75,000 and 120,000, of which 1,200 to 1,500 were knights on horseback, and the rest, some 60 to 100,000, were on foot. Of these, he states around 15,000 to 20,000 may have been permanent non-combatants. The rest were infantry of varying skill and background. Fleury's estimate is, nonetheless, one of the highest. In contrast, Sir Stephen Runciman, writing in the 50s, estimates around 4,500 cavalry and 30,000 infantry, some of whom were, quote, civilians that could be pressed into service. He also says a quarter of the army may have been made up of permanent non-combatants. Women, children, and the elderly. So that's a total of around 43,000. Around 60% of Fleury's lowest estimate, and a third of his ceiling. While none of them go quite as high as Fleury, the other sources I've got on hand do fall more within his range. John France estimates the size of the Peasants' Crusade to be around 20,000, including non-combatants of which around 3,000 may have survived to join up with the other armies in 1097. Though I should mention that Kilij Arslan's forces didn't just butcher the elements of the Peasants' Crusade, they also took hundreds if not thousands of slaves. Slaves that were then housed in Nicaea and Antioch, and who we'll be seeing again in the future. France gives a headcount of 50 to 60,000 for the full force of the army on the eve of the Siege of Nicaea of which 7,000 were knights. So according to him, counting the lost forces of the Peasants' Crusade, around 70 to 80,000 pilgrims arrived at Constantinople in the space of around a year, from June 1096 to May 1097. Not too dissimilar from Florey's most conservative estimate. In this same ballpark, Christopher Tierman, in God's War, glosses over the question of numbers and just says the army was around 60,000 strong as it attacked Nicaea without going into detail. Thomas Asbridge is a bit more generous in his estimate. He says there were about 75,000 souls in the army before Nicaea. Of these, he estimates 7,500 knights and around 50,000 other combatants. My copy of his book, The First Crusader New History, actually says 5,000, not 50,000. But this is almost certainly a typo or a misprint. Anyway, that leaves around 17,500 noncombatants, right on the lower edge of Fleury's range. In the social structure of the First Crusade, which will be one of the main sources for the rest of our episode, by the way, historian Connor Kostick mostly agrees with John France's estimate of fifty to 60,000, but feels that the amount of non-combatants has been greatly underestimated to date. So he inflates that number up to a whopping 40,000, adding that to France's 50,000 combatants, coming to a final total of around 90,000, of which nearly half were non-combatants. I find myself inclined to agree with Caustic here, but I do feel 40,000 is a bit too high. If you asked me, gun to my head, after reading all these sources I've been quoting, I think I'd give a total number of around 90,000 as well but I'd say only 20 to 30,000 of these were non-combatants, a bit more in line with Jean Fleury's breakdown. I'd probably put the amount of knights at around 10,000, between France's and Fleury's numbers. And then the rest, a good 50 to 60,000, were some sort of infantry. So I'm definitely on the higher end here, Don't worry, my numbers will get much more conservative as all these folks find themselves getting butchered in myriad ways on the route to Jerusalem. Now, we've been talking a bit about the breakdown here, and I've been using this term, knight. What does that mean? I know you, dear listener, have probably got an image in your head of what a knight is. But how true to reality is that image? Shaped as it is by centuries of medieval and renaissance mythologizing and romanticizing. Not to mention decades of Hollywoodizing and Orlando Bloomizing. I took this horse from the sea! Pause for a moment. I think that's the first Kingdom of Heaven reference we've had on the show. What a great fucking movie. Inaccurate as all get-out, but just amazing. Make sure you get that Ridley Scott director's cut, by the way. Fuck theatrical releases of Ridley Scott films. Seriously. Anyway, as great as Ridley Scott is, he's very much one more imperfection in the glass through which we view the Crusader Knight, twisting and distorting the facts to put butts in movie theater popcorn butter stained seats. And this glass can't really take any more imperfections. See, it's not only modern film directors that have distorted this image. As usual the distortion goes right back to contemporaries. In a similar way to the issues we had back in episode 2.18, trying to figure out exactly what the terms used to refer to the relationship between Alexios Comdinos and the Crusaders meant, here, the terms used to refer to quote-unquote knights obfuscate the nature of the military and social role of this order. Let's talk about the English term real quick. So, English knight is a pretty old term. It was already in use in Old English, pronounced more phonetically as knicht. And it goes all the way back to Proto-Germanic, the parent language of the Germanic languages. Originally, the word meant boy, as in a male youth. By the Old English period, it was often used to refer to servants. Infantilizing those with less social standing is a time-honored tradition. When the term began to acquire the meaning we associate it with nowadays, it set it around the power relationship between a vassal, a servant, and his lord. This is similar to the change we talked about regarding the term dulos in Greek, from slave or servant to vassal. And in fact, the English word sergeant has a very similar origin. It comes from Old French sergeant, which in turn comes from the Latin word serwienge. Which meant servant, and is in fact the origin of the word servant as well. Basically, sergeant and servant have the same origin in Latin, they're doublets. Likewise, the Latin term ministerialis was used in the region of Germany to refer to a particular form of unfree knight, raised up from serfdom to military service. At the end of the 11th century, ministeriales were still unfree though they had some level of social status from their association with the nobles who owned them, not unlike Mamluks in the Fatimid Caliphate. And this brings me to another important point. In the 11th century, the idea of a knight as a noble was not a universal one. It was becoming more popular, though, and by the 13th century, about 100 years after the First Crusade, We can start to identify knights as a distinct social class, a noble class. By that point, German ministeriales were also being lumped in with free knights, and the remaining traits of their once servile status had mostly faded. What happened is that the concept of vassalage, service to a lord, which is reflected in the English word knight, fused with another attribute, reflected in the old French terms Chevalier, or sometimes cavalier, the origin of English words like chivalry and cavalier and modern French chevalier. That attribute is right there at the beginning of the word. Cheval, meaning horse. Because what made these fellas stand out was their horse. Now, we will be getting into military strategy in a few episodes' time. But for now, I think we can easily sum it up saying that horses were two important things. One, useful in the context of medieval combat, and two, expensive. This meant that owning a horse became not only something that would make a warrior much better at warrioring, but that the prohibitive cost tied it to warriors coming from a higher social rank, those who could afford a horse. Someone who knows how to ride. At one point in time, this merger of vassal service and horse riding as the key characteristic of a specific social class was thought to have happened right at the beginning of the Middle Ages, all at once, and basically on purpose. In 1907, German historian Hans Delbruck published Geschichte der Kriegskunst im Rahmen der politischen Geschichte or in English. The History of the Art of War in the Context of Political History. My wife wants everyone to know that her German is rusty, and she feels she could have done a much better job if this had happened a few years ago when she was speaking German more frequently. Still, thank you very much. Anyway, in this volume of his eventually four-volume set, Delbruck argued that the rise of the Carolingian Empire had been in large part thanks to an innovation by the patriarch of this clan, the Frankish mayor of the palace, and de facto ruler from 718 until his death in 741, Charles Martel, affectionately known on this podcast as Charlie Hammer. Now, according to Delbruck, when faced with the forces of Muslim raids from Iberian cavalry, Charlie Hammer decided to create his own brand of horsey boys, and he used the fief, the cornerstone of feudalism, as a reward for them. Later on, the invention of the stirrup would be cited as the technological innovation that made Carolingian knights so effective. Now, Delbruck was a big figure in military history, and uh, he innovated a lot of dope shit, but, you know... Early 20th century German stuff can be pretty hit or miss, to put it lightly. And, unfortunately, this whole theory is, if you'll forgive the pun, horseshit. Charlie Hammer by no means invented the knight, and he certainly didn't invent feudalism. Not only was the knight as a social class and feudalism a later development, but it happened more organically, over time, instead of a snap decision in the 8th century – Later, over the course of the 10th, 11th, and 12th centuries, the idea of a horse-mounted warrior became synonymous with certain strata of nobility, apart from the common folk. This was, of course, linked to ideas we've already talked about this season, especially the aggrandizement of warfare as a key facet of aristocracy, which was well-established throughout the medieval era. But by the later 11th century, the creation of the knight wasn't exactly complete. So identifying references to this class can be difficult. We also have to deal with the fact that unlike the 12th and especially 13th centuries, in the texts, we're not dealing with romance terms like chevalier. No, we're working with Latin. Now, Latin came with its own literary tradition of referring to social classes, and unlike later medieval terms, these weren't exactly reflective of military roles. So, we have two issues. One is the fact that certain writers use terms that they're parroting from classical texts, terms that might not reflect real social distinctions. And the second is that they repurpose terms from classical Latin in a way that makes sense for them but relies on links between the term and a particular social reality that are unclear to us. So we really have to look at the context to understand how terms are being used, and what social reality they reflect. There are three Latin words that are of interest to us today. The first is eques, and the nearly identical derived term equester, both coming from Latin equus, meaning horse. And the second is miilesh, which in classical Latin meant soldier. It's the root of the English word military. But in the medieval era, it could mean many things, even when used by the same writer. And the last is pedesh, someone on foot. It literally means something like walker, and it's the root of English pedestrian. Now, equesh, plural equites, is easy enough to understand. It literally means a horse rider. However, it's often used in contexts where it's referring to people who are definitely not on horses. It seems to be a reference to, at the very least, a role that stuck with these fellas, even when they weren't literally on horseback. Aguites also carried with it a heritage from classical writings. The equestrian class, Ordo Equester, was a codified rank in the Roman Republic and Empire. There were also many times when the terms equesh and equestresh seemed to be used interchangeably with mileesh. Mileesh, plural milites, meaning soldier, is a term that appears to have multiple meanings in the medieval era. As John Franz puts it in Warfare in the Age of the Crusades quote, Throughout this period, the term mileesh denoted a general function. That of a soldier, a specific function, that of mounted soldier, and a social eminence attached to a bottom layer of the aristocracy. End quote. It was in these last two functions that it overlapped with terms like eques and equested. Now, in various of our crusade sources, miles could be used to generalize about soldiers, especially in phrases like hostes, milites, imperatorish the enemy soldiers of the emperor. But it was often used in a way that seemed to contrast Militesh with Peditesh, those on foot. Many of our sources refer to armies as being composed of Militesh and Peditesh. This makes little sense if Militesh covers all soldiers. You might say that uh, Peditesh refers to non-combatants on foot, but Peditesh is used in a military context. Bands of peditesh undertake military expeditions and whatnot. In some cases, the specific positioning of militesh and peditesh is mentioned, clearly indicating that militesh are those on horseback. What's more, there are also situations where Milesh and equesh are used in a way that clearly indicates they mean more than just someone on a horse. In one passage, Robert the Monk indicates that at a certain battle, Bohemond formed a battalion of Peditesh and Militesh, who had had to sell their horses. There was still something about the status of Militesh that stuck with them, even if they didn't, like, physically have a horse. But horses were key to this role. Many authors mention men who had once ridden on horses riding mules or donkeys in an effort to continue to be Militesh. And Fulcher even says that some noble Militesh lost their horses and became Peditesh. It's unclear if he's referring just to the physical change of becoming a pedestrian, or if he's referring to a loss in status, or if for him there was really any difference. It might also be the case that a man was understood to not only have lost his horse, but lost the ability to get a new one because he didn't have the necessary funds, that that was when he became an official Petitesh. That would seem to indicate a sort of hierarchy in the grouping of Equitesh and Militesh. Some members were only barely holding on, and without a horse, they'd immediately lose that status, while others, especially, for example, the Great Princes, held a more permanent claim to that title. As historian Conor Caustic points out, Guibert of Nogent has a very complex notice of this class that includes various strata of knights. Quote, of all the early crusading authors, Guibert had the most refined sense of social hierarchy, reflected in particular in his use of the term mediocre. Indeed, Guibert indicated that stratification existed among the class of equestres. With his use of the highly original phrase, mediocritate sequestrium virorum, the middle ranks of knights. The context of this improvisation by Guibert was his observation that after Pope Urban II had preached the Iter Dei at the Council of Claremont, the will of Counts Palatine was aroused, and the middle ranks of equestres besides had come to the brink of departure. The distinction made here indicates that Guibert considered that senior nobles were part of the order of Equestres, but so too were Equestres of more modest means. To emphasize how the whole of that order, greater and lesser, desired to join the expedition, he coined a unique phrase. Further evidence that Guibert's social schema for the First Crusade was a pyramid-like hierarchy arises from his observation that a multitude of the Mediocrees, principes, joined the expedition. These middling princes were defined by Guibert as the owners of one, two, three, or four towns and were present in sufficient numbers to draw comparisons with the Siege of Troy. Gibert might well have coined the highly unusual phrase Mediocres, Príncipes, to assist his description of the Christian forces. At the top were the handful of senior princes, below them a large number of others encompassed by the term Prínceps, but of more modest means, being the lords of between one and four towns. Below these were the Milites. All these groupings were encompassed within the category Equestris, Ordo, One interesting point here is that, as I've mentioned, Guibert was himself a member of the aristocracy. It would later be the aristocracy that began to systematically codify new terms to not only create strata in the knightly social class, but even to begin to separate the concept of the knight from his style of warfare. That is, owning a horse stopped being enough to be considered a knight as it seems to have sometimes been in the era of the First Crusade. Instead, terms that would later become the origin of English words like sergeant and squire were used to describe those who, in many ways, were indistinguishable from knights in how they operated on the battlefield, but did not own fiefs. Instead, they were paid, being effectively mercenaries. As John France puts it, quote, The term nilesh, had always had the social implication of superiority, and as the 12th century wore on, this was applied in an exclusive way, as it became an aristocratic rank. One consequence of this was the development of new names, most notably Squire, to emphasize the gentle connections of those who fought on horseback, but could not afford knighthood. Such men were the recruiting ground for the bulk of all retinues. Because contemporaries understood their social origins, there was little effort to describe them as mercenaries. That was a pejorative term, only rarely applied to these gentry who could aspire to upward movement with approval and who shared something of the lifestyle of the upper class and its aspirations, if not its wealth. End quote. But that is by the end of the 12th century. Things a hundred years earlier were different, and we often have accounts of even great princes on the First Crusade being paid for certain services. We even discussed that as a possibility for the arrangement between the Roman emperor Alexios Komnenos and the crusade leaders. In the 1090s, there was nothing that necessarily said a knight had to own a castle or fief to be considered a miles. Guibert's text and descriptions might be ahead of the curve here. And also a bit reactionary. He might have been trying to, in a way, limit entry to true nobility, perhaps because there were too many upstarts gaining entry to the ranks of the knights. In fact, the 11th century was an age of mobility, and while later on becoming a knight, or milesh, was quite a feat indeed, it seems to have been much easier to manage during the First Crusade. But conversely, Losing this status was also much easier. Men who had lost their horses, becoming peditesh, seems to have been a relatively common occurrence. On various occasions, these men are recorded as being desperate to regain their horses. They would do this by chasing after Arab horses, or trading in the loot and slaves gained from sacking a city to buy horses from Arab markets, at Homs or Damascus all to ensure that they stayed Militesh. These were probably what Guibert would refer to as middling knights, those who could easily lose this status. As Caustic puts it, quote, The early crusading histories reveal a willingness to accept rapid changes of social status, particularly with the downward movement of milites to pedites." The problem with Militesh becoming Peditesh is a great one if those terms have a social content and society at large has a strict understanding of that content. But if the lower level of knighthood was still relatively undefined, then such social fluidity seems less remarkable. Having abandoned their lands, the less distinguished knights were no longer anchored in a lordly social position. Furthermore, they could easily lose their distinguishing accoutrements during the periods of great hardship experienced by Christian forces of the First Crusade the horse and their arms. Then, all that would distinguish them from the foot soldiers was their previous training and their desire to regain their lost status. Milites, Equites, and Equestres, in the early Crusading histories, were, by and large, members of the social class of knights. Membership of this class, however, was not firmly fixed, particularly in the context of a three-year expedition. For the poorer knights, their status was at times a precarious one. Quote. But as precarious as it was, the wide range of meanings that were covered by a term like milesh also meant that entry into and movement within these echelons was easier, definitely easier than it would be later. Here we come to a very particular type of knight, a youth, or in Latin, juvenis, often referred to in a collective sense with the derived term juventus, the youth as a whole. These terms seem to have had some rough synonyms adolescens, the source of English, adolescent, and tiro a word that was originally Etruscan and in the classical Roman period referred to young military recruits between 17 and 20 years old. In the medieval era, Uenash were stereotypically the younger men of noble families. In the later Middle Ages, the Uentus would become the stars of romantic epics. In many ways, they are the prototype of the knight or paladin of modern historical fiction and fantasy. They joust, they hunt dragons, they rage against tyranny. Those aren't only tropes divorced from reality, though, but an imaginary ideal that still hadn't quite formed in the late 11th century. Still, the elements were there, percolating. Even the jousting. We'll talk about that in the future, I think. Next time we see the Fatimids. In the 11th century, Uenish seems to refer primarily to an unlanded knight, whose future was still uncertain. This often overlapped with age, but not necessarily. Men like Tancred of Hauteville and Baldwin of Boulogne were covered by this label. Now, Tancred was a skilled commander in his own right, even if he didn't own any territory of his own, while Baldwin was not only in his thirties, but married. However, because they hadn't progressed to a certain level in their career, they were considered Uweneish. The concept of Yuenish also seems to cover knights that weren't established not necessarily because of their youth, but because of their recent entry into the ranks of knighthood. Again, infantilizing those perceived to be of a lower social status. Guibert of Nogent actually provides a very interesting example here. He says that Robert Giscar had been banished from Normandy as a Pedesh, and had gained horses and weapons to become an Equesh. Gibert's facts are off here, but what's more interesting is that he clearly thinks that Abedesh could become an Equesh. He goes on to say that this homo, new man, was able to expand his territory by taking castles and cities. It was, in Gibert's eyes, perfectly reasonable for a foot soldier to become a knight by gaining a horse and the appropriate weapons of the station and then move out of this middling rank by gaining castles and cities. Guibert's perception of the Guiscar is even more interesting when you consider the fact that the Italo-Normans seem to have openly advertised not only their relatively humble origins, but the fact that their rise to power came thanks to their being very successful brigands engaging in violent behavior seems to have been a very good way to move up through the ranks of 11th century society with the fragmentation of power following the carolingian collapse small local powers began to rely more and more on extortion to establish their rights here we see another reason for terms like youth as well as old english meaning boy to be applied to knights think of the mafia don threatening to sic his boys on a business owner who refuses to pay up. The nature of that interaction would have been very familiar to 11th century knights, those of established background, with some claims to nobility, rubbing shoulders alongside men they'd hired to act as muscle, usually from a lower social background. As John France puts it in Western Warfare in the Age of the Crusades, quote, The castle and the retinue formed a theater for relations between these important aristocrats, the castle holders, who by the early 11th century were very numerous, and their humbler followers, to whom we give the title of knights. This was the foundation of the fusion of knighthood and nobility. Another factor which facilitated the fusion was that many knights were from noble houses. As laws of inheritance tightened, Younger sons or members of impoverished lines, enjoying at best limited land tenure, had to make their way in association with armed bully boys of humble origins. Landless household knights continued to be common, but land was their aspiration, and in the milieu of the castle and the retinue, they profited from association with their betters. It was natural for such men, once they had become landowners, to ensure the protection of status by rules of lineage that imitated those of the nobility. Therefore, a whole shared experience tended to turn the more successful of the hired bully boys of the lords into a kind of lower rank of the aristocracy. The distinctiveness of the military lifestyle and the need for military solidarity stamped all its participants and created shared values. The fluidity of this social milieu enabled some young men to rise in the social scale by military prowess. Noble families began to rewrite their genealogies, pretending that they had descended from such admirable figures, rather than ancient noble lineages, to establish the worth of their position in terms of the new Desiderata. Thus, by the end of the 11th century, the cavalry were a very mixed group. Combining the greatest aristocrats with petty landholders and social climbers, who could barely afford the equipment of a mounted soldier. End quote. Extreme violence was not at all absent from the Juventus on the First Crusade. These bully boys were there too. Speaking about the role of certain Juventus in a particular siege, Guibert of Nogent writes, Several of the Frankish juvenes, whom pious audacity had already made more preeminent, threw themselves forward, and together they climbed to the top of the wall. I would identify them by name on this page, if I had not known that after their return they incurred the infamy of wickedness and crime. End quote. Guybert's reference to these anonymous U.N. Nash makes more sense if you take a look at his other work, his autobiography, which covers a wide range of topics and includes... Mention of a certain Thomas of Marl. I might have mentioned him before. He was, like William the Carpenter, a knight who had joined up under Count Emiko and participated in the Jewish pogroms of 1096. Alongside William the Carpenter, he then headed into France and eventually ended up joining Hugh of Vermandois' army. By all accounts, Thomas was a psychopath. For an example, let's actually turn to what Guibert wrote about Thomas in his autobiography. A quick gore warning, the following is not for the faint of heart, and if you don't want to hear it, uh, jump ahead to 52 minutes. After the First Crusade, Thomas apparently got wrapped up in some political fiasco, and to introduce this character, Guibert writes, quote, They decided to call in Thomas, the son of Ducousi, who had the castle of Marle, to defend them from the king's attack. He, it appears, attained power to ruin hosts of people by praying from early youth on the poor and pilgrims to Jerusalem. So heard of in our times was his cruelty that men considered cruel seem more merciful in killing cattle than he in murdering men. For he did not merely kill them outright with the sword and for definite offenses, as is usual, but by butchery after horrible tortures for when he was compelling prisoners to ransom themselves, he hung them up by their testicles, sometimes with his own hands. And these, often breaking away through the weight of the body, there followed at once the breaking out of their vital parts. Others were suspended by their thumbs or even their private parts, And were weighted with a stone placed on their shoulders, and he himself walking below them, when he failed to extort what he could not get by other means, beat them madly with cudgels until they promised what satisfied him or perished under punishment. No one can tell how many expired in his dungeons and chains by starvation, disease, and torture. But it is certain that two years before, when he had gone to the mountains of Soissons to give aid against some countrymen, Three of these hid themselves in a cave, and coming to the entrance into the cave with his lance, he drove his weapon into the mouth of one of them, with so hard a thrust that the iron of the lance breaking through the entrails passed out by the anus. Why go on with instances that have no end? The two left in the cave both perished by his hand. Again, one of his prisoners being wounded could not march, he asked the man why he did not go faster. He replied that he could not. Stop, said he. I will make you hurry and be sorry for it. Leaping down from his horse, he cut off both the man's feet, and of that the man died. Of what use is it to recount these horrors, when later there will be like occasion for mentioning them? I will return to my matter. End quote. Again with the why talk of such things, while talking of such things. This bloodthirsty violence was extreme, to say the least, but it also speaks to a general association of knights in general, and yuen in particular, with warfare. Many of the sources refer to yuen leading the charge in battle, and often being the first across the ramparts. They were, as of yet, unproven knights, and as such, more given to extreme acts of, quote-unquote, valor. This stereotypical characteristic could also surface as recklessness. As I mentioned when covering the Peasants' Crusade, the Juventus are frequently blamed for leading the charge against cities like Zemun and Nish. They're also blamed for their greed in Anatolia, which led to the massacres at Zeragordos and Civitant. This specific sector of glory-seeking knights given to acts of extreme violence will become a very important faction within the army as it travels further east. And in earlier days, their behavior was often blamed for the entire crusade. As 20th century French historian Georges Duby put it, It is obvious that it was the bands of youths, excluded by so many social prohibitions from the main body of settled men, fathers of families, and heads of houses, with their prolonged spells of turbulent behavior making them an unstable fringe of society, who created and sustained the Crusades. Quote. This theory that the First Crusade and subsequent Crusades were driven by the ambition of younger sons and bully boys has fallen somewhat out of favor, but it can't be denied that at least a portion of the knightly class on the Crusade were trying to make something out of themselves, and they were prone to bouts of bloodthirstiness along the way up the social ladder. Now, greatly outnumbering this knightly class were what the sources usually call pauper, in plural, pauperes, the poor. In fact, the source of English, poor, via French, and also in a form directly borrowed from Latin, pauper. They are also referred to as pleb, which, of course, has also been borrowed into English, and egenus, meaning the needy or wanting. And sometimes a collective noun is used. Vulgus, the source of English vulgar, is a common one, as is multitudó, the source of multitude, and also turba, which is the root in words like disturb and turbulent, and a distant cognate of English storm, actually. On occasion... Beditesh, walkers, is also used to describe this same group, but that can also be used more specifically to refer to combatants who were on foot. Infantry. Whatever the name, this is a hard-to-define group. As Christopher Tierman puts it in How to Plan a Crusade, quote, The masses of poor, who color narrative accounts of crusading, resist clear identification. Were they the indigent or merely the unrich?" Preachers and chroniclers employed poverty almost indiscriminately to describe social status, economic condition, or moral standing, a synonym variously for non nobles, infantry, the newly impoverished non combatants, or even in quasi monastic terms, all End signati. In real world terms, Pauperes generally encompassed combatants who lacked horses, that is, the peditesh we talked about earlier, as well as non-combatants, usually excluding only noble women. That sounds simple, but it's a term that could range from the poorest serf, who had illegally run away from their fields and had nothing to their name, to poorer knights that, for whatever reason, had been unable to afford a horse or lost their horse. It could also include the members of a noble's household, kitchen staff, and other servants, for example, as well as merchants and other sorts of more urban residents. It was a very wide label, formed in part by the exclusion of certain groups, primarily the separation between milites, knights, and everyone else. If you weren't a knight, basically, you probably fell under the label of bauped. So if you're reading a translation of a primary source, keep in mind that poor— is being used to describe almost everyone, not really the destitute. In previous episodes, we've talked about some of the motivations driving these people. A very simple one is the opportunity to participate in a pilgrimage. Mass pilgrimages organized by the non-elite weren't unknown prior to the First Crusade, and aspects of Peter the Hermit's expedition seem to have been operating in that vein the economic situation in Latin Europe during the early 1090s may also have contributed. As I mentioned back in episode 2.11, famines and plagues had skyrocketed in the years leading up to 1095, leading to terrible living conditions. Guibert of Nogent talks of relatively well-off farmers selling their land and possessions to buy a wagon and set off with their whole family in tow. Unfree serfs and slaves were obviously not allowed to participate without being freed, but some may have ran away illegally anyway. Eckhart of Aura records this behavior in this way, quote, The farmers, the women, and children, roving with unheard of folly, abandoned the land of their birth, gave up their own property, and yearned for that of foreigners, and to go to an uncertain promised land. End quote. It wasn't only in the fields that the crusading army sourced its members, though. City folk may have been specifically targeted by Peter the Hermit, as accounts of his preaching center around his visits to large urban areas, such as Cologne. Merchants were definitely present on the crusade, though many of them actually followed the expedition by ship, and they hailed from cities like Genoa. All of these people, farmers, free and unfree, as well as burghers, artisans, and other specialists, may have been persuaded by talk of the land of milk and honey, just as the world around them was being ravaged by hunger and sickness. This view of reaching some sort of blessed holy land also played into some of the apocalyptic beliefs I've mentioned before. We talked at length about the cult-like mentality of the Peasants' Crusade. That wasn't an element that disappeared in 1096. 1096. A belief that the end of days was close at hand remained a component of the expedition throughout, and it's often associated with the poor, though it's probably misleading to say it was only the poor who thought the world was about to end. And this ties into another issue we have with how the sources present the Pauperaesh. Often, references to the poor are really more in search of making a statement about the world and how it should be ordered. I've already mentioned today that Guibert of Nogent was an aristocrat, and he seems to have been particularly interested in organizing a certain social hierarchy that perhaps didn't really exist. One of the ways he expressed this was in his criticism of the poor, especially the Peasants' Crusade, for their ridiculously stupid beliefs. As Christopher Tierman puts it, Quote, It is sometimes argued that the overt apocalyptic strand in crusade commentary, particularly associated with the First Crusade, reflected the emotions of the populace, the non-elite Krukesignati. Why the less educated and socially disadvantaged should be more susceptible to intimations of the Last Judgment than those in the educated elites who promoted its imminence in the first place is unclear. The susceptibility to rumor and mass enthusiasm attested by witnesses to preaching campaigns in 1095 and 1096 was hardly the preserve of the socially marginal, as preachers' accounts show. When observers, such as Guibert of Nogent, cast lofty aspersions on the rabble, as he saw it, who answered the call of the cross in 1095 to 1096, his targets were not necessarily paupers, but rather the ignorant, or those lacking aristocratic lay or ecclesiastical guidance and control. Guibert's jibes at the woman and the credulous band which traipsed behind her special goose revealed that even this eccentric example of crusade enthusiasm exhibited a degree of cohesive social structure. End quote. So we have to be aware that talking about the poor was also a way to disparage elements of the crusade that weren't tied to the elements that men like Guibert viewed as rightly guided. Basically anyone who didn't buy into his aristocratic and reformed church hierarchy. One thing that probably would have made Guibert very happy was the fact that once on the crusade, the poor often found themselves entering the service of nobles. Of course, some of them had set out, possibly against their will, as members of nobles' households. But while on Crusade, many folks who had set out of their own accord drifted into the orbit of the elites. This made it easier to think of them as directly subordinate to the nobles, forming a neat little pyramid structure, the nobles on top, lesser knights beneath them, and then the mass of Bautberesh. Now, so far, we've focused on social dynamics mainly from this hierarchical point of view. Because, as we discussed back in episode 2.1, Latin Europe was a society that considered violence an aristocratic quality, this pyramid also related to military roles. The nobles were captains and commanders, the knights were the most effective warriors, and the infantry grunts were pulled from the mass of Pauperech. But there were two sectors of the Crusade that were, in a sense, outside of this structure, in part because they didn't have a clear military identity. These two sectors were the clergy and women. Now, technically, Pope Urban had actually forbidden both of these groups to participate. In fact, in our opening, Albert, who is a monk, is pretty bummed about the fact that he couldn't go on crusade. He says he was unable to do so, quote, "...because of diverse impediments given to the effecting of my intention." These diverse impediments may have been, very simply, that he was a monk, and he didn't get permission to participate. However, this ban, and a more general focus on the crusade as an expedition for fighting men, didn't really stop either the clergy or women from participating anyway. Now, the clergy. This was a pretty diverse group. Many of them were members of noble households, and sometimes, like Guibert of Nogent, of aristocratic background themselves. They were chaplains and occasionally functioned as clerks. The modern word clerk, by the way, comes from clergy, and refers to the fact that in an age when reading and writing was tied to the church, if you wanted someone to do your writing and whatnot, you hired someone who was church-educated. During the Crusade, clergy members would be put in charge of typical church stuff, like leading mass prayers and organizing funerals. But they would also be called upon to negotiate with enemies. And... They even took part in battle. Fulcher of Chartres, who's one of our chroniclers, and would eventually become Baldwin of Boulogne's chaplain, is often tied to the activities of the Juventus. He's a bit of an honorary Juvenish, a youth. Anna Komnini also recounts a hilarious tale involving a priest. During a naval skirmish between a friend of hers, Marianus, who was the son of the Byzantine admiral, and a certain Prebensas, usually taken to be Richard of the Principate, Bohemond's cousin, during Richard's approach to Constantinople, from southern Italy. Quote, Barely 15 days later, Bohemond made the crossing to the coast of Cabalion. Hard on his heels came the Count Richard of the Principate. He too, when he reached the Lombardy coast, wanted to cross over to Illyricum. A three-masted pirate vessel of large tonnage was hired for 6,000 gold staters. She carried 200 rowers, and towed three ship's boats. Richard did not make for Avlona, as the other Latin armies had done, but after weighing anchor, changed direction a little with the wind, and sailed straight for Cremara, as he was fearful of the Roman fleet. However, in escaping the smoke, he fell into the fire. He avoided the ships lying in wait at different points in the Lombardy Straits, but crossed the path of the commander-in-chief of the whole Roman fleet, Nicolás Macrocátacalón himself. The latter had heard of this pirate vessel some time before and had detached biremes, triremes, and some fast cruisers from the main force. Without delay, the order was carried out, and Nicolás, seeing the signal, hoisted sail on some of his ships, while others were rowed with oars, looking like millipedes, against Richard, who was now at sea. They caught him before he had sailed three stades from the land. He had 1,500 soldiers on board, plus eight horses belonging to the nobles. The helmsman, citing Nicolás, reported to the Frank, The Syrian fleet is on us! We're in danger of being killed by dagger and sword! The Count at once ordered his men to arm and put up a good fight. It was midwinter. But there was a dead calm, and the full moon shone more brightly than in the spring. As the winds had fallen completely, the pirate ship could no longer make progress under sail. It lay becalmed on the sea. At this point in the story, I should like to pay tribute to the exploits of Marianus. He immediately asked the admiral of the fleet, his father, for some of the lighter vessels, and then steered straight for Richard's ship. He fell upon the prow and tried to board her. The marines soon rushed there when they saw that he was fully armed for battle. But Marianus, speaking in their language, told the Latins there was no need for alarm. He urged them not to fight against fellow Christians. Nevertheless, one of them fired a crossbow and hit his helmet. The arrow drove clean through the top of it without touching a hair on his head. Providence thwarted it. Another arrow was quickly fired at the count, striking him on the arm. It pierced his shield, bored through his breastplate of scale armor, and grazed his side. A certain Latin priest, who happened to be standing in the stern with 12 other fighting men, saw what had occurred and shot several times with his bow at Marianus. Even then, Marianus refused to give up. He fought bravely himself and encouraged his men to follow his example, so that three times the priest's comrades had to be relieved because of wounds or fatigue. The priest, too, although he had been hit again and again and was covered with streams of blood from his wounds, was still undaunted. After a bitter contest, which went on from evening till then next midday, the Latins yielded much against their will to Marianus, when they had asked for and obtained an amnesty from him. The warrior-priest, however, even when the armistice was being arranged, did not cease from fighting. After emptying his quiver of arrows, he picked up a sling stone and hurled it at Marianus, who protected his head with a shield, but that was broken into four and his helmet was shattered. <laughs> The blow stunned him. He lost consciousness at once, and for some time lay speechless, just as the famous Hector lay almost at his last gasp when struck by Ajax's stone. With difficulty, he recovered his senses, pulled himself together, and firing arrows against his enemy wounded him three times. The Pole March—he was more that than a priest—was far from having had his fill of battle. Although he had exhausted the stones and arrows, and was at a loss— what to do or how to defend himself against his adversary. He grew impatient, on fire with rage, gathering himself for the spring like a wild animal. He was ready to use whatever came to hand, and when he found a sack of barley cakes, he threw them like stones, taking them from the sack. It was as if he was officiating at some ceremony or service, turning war into the solemnization of sacred rites. He picked up one cake, hurled it with all his might at Marianus's face and hit him on the cheek. So much for the story of the priest, the ship and its marines. As for Count Richard, he put himself in the hands of Marianus, together with his ship and her crew, and thereafter gladly followed him. When they reached land and were disembarking, the priest kept on making inquiries about Marianus he did not know Marianus's name, but described him by the color of his garments. When at last the priest found Marianus, he threw his hands around him and with an embrace boasted, "If you had met me on dry land, many of you would have died at my hands." He drew out a large silver cup, worth 120 staters, and as he gave it to Marianus and uttered these words, he died." End quote. Anna's image of this berserker priest using barley cakes as weapons in some sort of bizarre parody of priests giving out, like, communion wafers is just… sublime. I don't think there's a better passage in any of the crusade histories. That's pretty much peak First Crusade. Now, apart from fighting with cakes, clergy members also took up positions of leadership. Preachers like Peter the Hermit were powerful figures who could whip up popular support. They often coordinated relief for the poorest members of the army, and this gave them even more clout, in those circles at least. Eventually, this would lead to certain alliances between the foci of popular support, these preachers, and nobles. The clergy were also, more generally, concerned with the spiritual well-being of the army, And this meant that they would demand certain measures be taken to ensure that the army was good with God, you know? Things like fasting, and of course, kicking all the women out of the camp. More than any other segment of the crusading army, women were most frequently reduced to stereotypes. Their gender inherently shut them out of histories, except as symbolic figures, often of lustful sin, or as trophies to be won or preserved. As Laura A. Brady puts it in Essential and Despised, Images of Women in the First and Second Crusades, 1095 to 1148, quote, A problem central to studies of medieval women is the basic fact that the chronicles were written by men, for men, and about men. So then how do we proceed with a discussion about women's participation in and influence on the crusading movement? It is important to realize from the outset that those with a greater access to power will be disproportionately represented in documents, and thus in their contribution to the historical record. In the Middle Ages, the group with access to power was by definition male. Thus, all ideas of femaleness were created and advanced by men. The voices of the women of the Crusades are muted, fractured, and distorted by the chroniclers, most of whom were clerics. The only way we can know the women of the Crusades is through the mediation of men's voices. The discussions of women in the Chronicles are molded by the perceptions of the male authors. They were constructed by clerics who expected and therefore realized a certain vision of women through their writings. Quote. Perhaps more than any other topic, talking about women on the Crusade requires surgical dissection of both the Chronicles and the context in which these men were writing. Now, I feel the need to indicate that the discussion here will veer towards sexual violence as one of its main themes. You can jump to 1 hour, 16 minutes, and 16 seconds if you'd rather skip over this content. Not only was sexual violence against women a constant reality, but it was present as a literary topos as well. If the sources are talking about women, especially as a group, like at least half of the time, it's to mention instances of sexual violence. In the context of medieval narrative, that was the main role of women, to be raped or protected from being raped. It'd almost be funny if it weren't so goddamn fucked up. Brady goes on to point out how even though women were, ostensibly, prohibited from participation in the crusade, they were in many ways one of the catalysts for the entire expedition. Or rather, the image of women was a catalyst. Back in episode 2.6, I quoted a few different renditions of Pope Urban's speech. These renditions usually include a reference to women victims of infidel atrocities. For example, Robert the Monk says, What shall I say of the abominable rape of women? To speak of it is worse than to be silent. Brady explores how this kind of rhetoric was tied together with the concept of territorial conquest. Quote, This was an appeal to the emotions of the men in the crowd, who were socialized to be protectors. It was the responsibility of Christian knights to safeguard Christian women from the threat of the infidels. Moreover, the threat was portrayed as an overtly sexual one, no doubt because this would likely be interpreted as a more serious menace than mere physical impairment. That is, Christian women raped by Muslim men, the so-called unclean race, would be a grave affront to all Christianity. Furthermore, the perception of women as a group to be protected from violation along with the Holy Land implies that women were perceived to be passive and supple. The safety of these women is grouped with the inviolability of the Greek's land. The sanctity of the Holy Land and of the sexual purity of the women are grouped in a natural fashion, lending a territorial, protective quality to the discussion of the violation of their rights. In related fashion, the defense and protection of the Holy Land is likened to the security of a woman. The description of the Holy Land takes on a tone of femininity. William of Tyre writes, The cradle of our faith, the native land of our Lord, and the mother of salvation is now forcibly held by a people without God, the son of the Egyptian handmaiden. Her temple is become as a woman without honor, and her glorious vessels are carried away into captivity. In this instance, her refers to the Holy Land, specifically Jerusalem, which is described as a woman violated and destitute. Furthermore, the city, represented as a defenseless woman, is incapable of fighting off incursions, and is thus defiled and cheapened by her captors. End quote. This fiction of the Crusade clearly indicates that men are meant to be the enactors of this pilgrimage and protection. They're going to defend the female-coded cities and churches of the East. It maybe helps the narrative and the illusion that, in Latin and the Romance languages, both city and church are feminine nouns. So, if all this imaginary is taking place, what were, like, actual women supposed to be doing? Well, in most narratives, they're presented as, ideally... Staying home. Brady later quotes William of Tyre again, saying, When those who had been named as leaders of the various bands summoned the rest, these tore themselves from the embraces of their dear ones, with sobs and sighs, and after exchanging last farewells and kisses, departed. With tears and wailing, mother accompanied departing sons, daughters father, and sisters brother, while wives, carrying suckling babies in their arms, attended their husbands. After the last farewells had been said, they followed with fixed gaze, those whom they could not accompany farther in reality. Women are simply not cut out for this journey. They're meant to stay home and manage the household. There no doubt were women left in this role. Episode 2.18 opened with an account of Adela of Blois, who managed the affairs of the county of Blois and her family just fine during her husband Stephen's absence. Adela and probably a lot of other women likely enjoyed uh, the relative freedom that their lack of a present husband afforded them. But on the whole, this image is a fiction. Not only did many women participate in the crusade, but the entire scenario ignores non-aristocratic women. This image that William of Tyre gives is also typical of writers who focus on the reformed papacy perspective. Those who really stress the importance of the knight in all this. Other chroniclers, less focused on that perspective, like Albert of Aachen, often stress the universal appeal of the Crusade, and they punctuate long spiels about how everyone was all fired up, with mentions of women being super keen on the pilgrimage as well. Orderic Vitalis says, No sooner had Pope Urban eloquently poured forth these complaints in the ears of Christians than, by the inspiration of God's grace, Thousands were inflamed with excessive zeal for undertaking the enterprise and resolved to sell their lands and leave all they had for the sake of Christ. Husbands were ready to leave their beloved wives at home, and wives were equally desirous to leave their children and all their substance and accompany their husbands on the journey. Meanwhile, William of Malmesbury says, Joy attended such as proceeded, while grief oppressed those who remained. But why do I say remained? You might see the husband departing with his wife. Indeed, with all his family. You would smile to see the whole household, laden on a carriage, about to proceed on their journey. So what did these women end up doing? Well, a number of them seem to have participated in battle. Our Latin chroniclers mention women bringing stones for siege engines, water for soldiers, and just being general encouragement. They also often mention women among the dead at several battles and sieges. Meanwhile, the Arabic historian Imad ad-Din writes, "There were indeed women who rode into battle with cuirasses and helmets, dressed in men's clothes, who rode out into the thick of the fray and acted like brave men, although they were but tender women." End quote. This seems to indicate that women did participate in battle, perhaps dressed in men's clothes. Our Latin historians don't usually go so far, but on occasion, they mention women taking up arms, usually in spite of, quote, natural weakness, when circumstances were truly dire. These women are also never named. So where did they come from? Well, there were aristocratic women along for the ride. They generally came with their husbands. Raymond of Toulouse brought his wife Elvira, for example but many of them were likely members of noble households, servants or slaves, and other sorts of workers. Some were maybe traveling with their entire family after having sold the farm or invested money from some sort of mercantile profit. And many of them, particularly those without a family support network, were no doubt sex workers. Sex workers have followed in the wake of armies since time immemorial. The First Crusade was no different. All these sorts of folks, especially the lower rungs of the Baupadish, and especially, especially non-combatants, seem to have been placed under the command of the clergy who advocated for them, but also seem to have had control over them. As I mentioned, the clergy would, on occasion, banish women from the camp because they were viewed as damaging the sexual purity of the army, thus causing it to lose God's favor. This was really based on two beliefs. One, that sexual purity directly affected the army's fortunes. Notably, it was a common belief that after jizzing, men would lose their potency and be rendered worse fighters. No jokes here. No jokes for you today. Two was that women were all sexual deviants and basically just lustful creatures that couldn't help but tempt men into lasciviousness, just as Eve had once done. As Brady puts it, quote, "'Women were viewed as inherently sexual, tempting and unclean. They were the devil's gateway.' The entrance for the impurities of sin and influence of the devil. Women represented a demoralizing force which diverted the soldiers' attention from battle and obstructed the process of war and the reclamation of the Holy Land. Women furthermore symbolized sexuality and the omnipotent potential for the draining of precious male semen or the depletion of their strength and fortitude in battle. As a means of controlling the sexual behavior of the crusaders, strict sexual law codes and austere penitential practices were enforced. The result was an enmity for the corrupting presence of women. End quote. Brady quotes an example from Fulcher of Chartres, who was actually notably misogynistic, and that's saying something considering his contemporaries. Quote We felt that misfortunes had befallen the Franks because of their sins, and that for this reason they were not able to take the city for so long a time. Luxury and avarice and price and plunder had indeed vitiated them. Then the Franks, having again consulted together, expelled the women from the army, the married as well as the unmarried, lest perhaps defiled by the sordidness of riotous living, they should displease the lord." These women then sought shelter for themselves in neighboring towns. End quote. It's interesting that not only were single women, perhaps a euphemism for sex workers, expelled, but married women as well. I don't know about you, but I can't imagine my wife taking it all too well if I told her, while besieging a city thousands of miles from home, that she had to get lost. Maybe find a friendly town around somewhere. Yeah, I know you don't speak Arabic. You can gesture, right? Regardless of their treatment during the First Crusade, women would prove vital during the infancy of the Outremer states. Not only Frankish women, but native, Levantine women would come to hold many of the most important positions of power in the Latin East. But we'll get to that in time. For now, let's wrap up with a mention of the lords, the men whose names are at the forefront of the contemporary sources. We've focused on everyone else, but even if they were a minority we can't ignore the crucial role these men played in the social structure of the First Crusade. In fact, maybe now that we have a better picture of the majority, we can understand this most vocal minority a bit better. These elites, men like Godfrey of Bouillon, were portrayed in many ways as the axles of these armies. The armies are wheels in this metaphor. The lesser knights formed their retinue, And many of the non-elite, as I mentioned, became attached to them as members of their household. This whole organizational unit was often known as a Familia, which did not have the exact same connotations modern English family does nowadays. These men were basically responsible for supplying their Familia. Tancred of Oatville is a good example. Though he was nominally subject to his uncle Bowman, he really came into his own during the crusade, going from the prototypical Uenish to a proper prince. After his death, the Norman chaplain Ralph of Cayenne, who was a dedicated follower of both Bohemond and Tancred, wrote a history of the crusade centered on Tancred, called Gesta Tancredi in Expeditione Jerusalemitana The Deeds of Tancred on the Jerusalem Expedition. So basically, Ralph has a vested interest in making Tancred look real, real good. And one of the ways he does this is focusing on how Tancred cared for his dependents. According to Ralph, Tancred provided his followers with not only supplies, but horses, mules, and even wages. Tancred is mentioned as having taken out loans to assure the well-being of his familia. And as we talked about in episode 2.16, many of the crusade leaders were actually related to each other by blood or marriage, and the concept of familia often stretched to include equals, not only subordinates. As Christopher Tierman puts it, quote, Leaders paying for their own household troops, hiring others, and subsidizing their transport presented a long history. The language of retaining appears in accounts of all Holy Land Crusades, from the 1090s onwards. Such bonds worked horizontally as well as vertically. On the First Crusade, Bohemond took kinsmen of equal status into his familia, while Count Raymond of Toulouse offered cash to recruit fellow commanders. Within the confines of lordship, Contractual dependence provided merely one element in reciprocal relationships characterized by sentiment as well as gain. Recruiting undifferentiated regiments of stipendaries or hiring fleets was a largely anonymous process. By contrast, dealing with household troops, close clients, and familia could involve personal responsibility, affection even. Lords traveled with administrative and domestic staff, military retinues, social dependents, and friends. Godfrey of Bouillon was accompanied by his butler, seneschal, chamberlain, clerical staff, and an extended clientage of lords and knights, and a group of client monks." Quote. It's not exactly inaccurate to view these crusading armies, and even the army as a whole, as one big family venture. Of course, expanding our definition of family to mean more what the Latin sources mean by familia, the household, wherein members were tied to each other by not only what we would consider family ties, but also by links of dependency that we might label employment or slavery. Modern companies are by no means the first entities to try to rope folks into thinking the whole enterprise is just one big happy family. Still, I can't help but now picture the whole First Crusade as basically National Lampoon's Jerusalem vacation. Complete with all the wacky hijinks you'd expect from a National Lampoon vacation flick. You know, mass murder, and uh... Well, yeah, basically just mass murder. I guess if you throw in Chevy Chase and John Candy, that might be funny? Returning to the concept of motivation for a second, thinking of the ties of dependency that linked especially the Pauperes to elites really gives another dimension to the idea of the notion that religious fervor was somehow more dominant in the ranks of the so-called poor. You sometimes see this notion play out in two different ways, both in our more contemporary sources and in modern takes. Sometimes the elite are shown as self-interested. Here, the perspective of the Juweneis is sometimes used. The nobles were all land-hungry robber barons, but the poor that followed in their wake were somehow more innocent and pious. They just wanted to make a pilgrimage. Please, sir, may I have more pilgrimage? Conversely, you sometimes see the religious expression of the poor cast in a more negative role. They were fanatical zealots, solely responsible for the Jewish pogroms, Hungarian massacres, and conflicts with the Byzantine Empire. The elites were the level-headed guiding hands that ensured the eventual success of the endeavor, in a way that of course rewarded them with control of the Holy Land. But this dichotomy is flawed in two big ways. The first is an artificial divide between material desires, like land, and spiritual desires. In any armed conflict, ideological concerns and self-interest are always going to have some sort of interplay. They reinforce each other, And the contradictions are always resolved in some way, often by an evolution in worldview. Latin Europe had a very different conception of both piety and society. For these pilgrims, it made total sense to, for example, demand a wage and still view themselves as pious. We gotta throw the idea of this entirely self-sacrificing crusader totally uninterested in gold or glory out of the window. But at the same time, we have to recognize that self-interest was not mutually exclusive with religious belief for these folks. They were real zealots. When we talk about what these crusaders thought they were doing, what they were motivated by, how they viewed their roles in the army of the cross, it's impossible to exactly relay that to a modern audience, because we just don't come to the table with the same worldview— There's of course the linguistic divide, that's part of the reason why etymology keeps coming up, but there's an even more massive gulf between our own ideologies and those of the crusaders, which of course also vary from individual to individual. Speaking more generally, this is also why history is a never-ending endeavor. Telling history is telling a story, an abstraction of events, translated from the real-world context it occurred in, to a new one. In this case, centuries later. And... Traduttore, traidore. Translator, traitor. There are things that will be lost in the translation and elements that will be emphasized or de-emphasized based on our modern context. The same sort of explanation Sir Stephen Runciman provided seven decades ago is going to be totally different from the type of explanation I'm giving now in 2022. Both the medium and the message are completely different. And as I think I've said before, this distortion can get really out of hand when you throw objectivity out the window. And that brings me to the second misconception, one that is in large part thanks to our sources. The idea of some sort of super-fixed and clear hierarchy on the Crusade. Men like Guibert of Nogent, or even Albert of Aachen, would love to have us believe that once the great lords took the reins of the Crusade, everything that followed was an expression of their faith and nobility. After all, the Crusade itself was born, at least in part, out of an attempt to control the knightly aristocratic class. So it makes sense that those who chronicled it focused on this sector of the population. These writers were for the most part aligned with the views of the Reformed papacy, or at least came from a tradition that approved of measures like the Peace and truce of God movements. They were inclined to criticize movements that didn't have that legitimacy as well as elements of the crusade that didn't fit that image, such as, for example, women and the non-elite more generally. We talked about this when we introduced the Peasants' Crusade. Peter the Hermit comes off looking pretty bad in the French perspective histories that preferred to point to Pope Urban as the originator, and the knights who took up the cross as true heroes, as long as they submitted to the church, of course. Albert of Aachen, writing in Germany, doesn't discount Peter to the same extent, mostly because he has little reason to give kudos to Urban, but even though he acknowledges the source of Peter's influence, that is popular support, not elite aristocratic legitimacy, Albert still criticizes many of the behaviors that characterize the Baupadish. And of course, women are never portrayed in a positive light by pretty much anyone. The best they can hope for is to be shown as victims, rather than as lustful sources of weakness, you know, jizz-stealing monsters. Reading between the lines, as we will be doing, obviously, the roles of those who are not named Raymond of St. Gilles, Beaumont of Toronto, or Godfrey of Bouillon becomes much clearer. As early as Nicaea, the lords found themselves having to deal with not only each other, but the needs and demands of their quote-unquote lessers. Decisions on this first crusade were determined by a council of the great lords. But already at Nicaea, This council of lords occasionally had to find itself making room for a greater assembly of all the members of the Army of the Cross, including the Popperish. As Connor Costick puts it, The Crusade had a common goal and a common theology, but within that it was riven into different social groupings, whose outlook varied considerably. The princes strove with each other and with the rest of the Crusade to establish a dominant position of leadership. The magnates, to become princes. The Yuenesh to prove their worth as magnates, deserving of praise and glory. For the knight, what mattered was to find a lord who could provide the payments that could keep them mounted and armed. In other words, to secure their status above the foot soldiers. For the latter, and even more for the paupereish below them, the priority was simply survival. But to achieve that basic goal necessitated political activity by the commoners. They had to insist upon a proper share of the captured booty, and they had to stop the magnates abandoning them. If the commoners had been entirely passive during the Crusade, they would have suffered starvation, massacre, and enslavement on an even greater scale than that which they experienced. Moreover, the expedition as a whole may have had quite a different outcome. The First Crusade should be understood as having a vibrant internal dynamic between all its component social groupings. In this regard, it was not just the papal leadership and the spiritual beliefs of the participants that set the expedition apart from all other medieval armies. Unlike a conventional medieval army, the First Crusade was something of a slice of European society on the march. End quote. And this level of participation on an endeavor far from familiar territory opened up opportunities. Men like Tancred of Oteville and Baldwin of Boulogne would end up taking advantage of those opportunities but others would make similar attempts. The perilous position of the crusading army would lead to unlikely alliances and set up political systems that would give the future Utremer states somewhat unique quirks, particularly when it came to the roles of clergy and women. It's maybe ironic that these kingdoms, born out of the most stereotypical expression of knightly warfare, would come to be politically dominated in many ways by two groups who were excluded from the knightly class though we'll dive into how that would come to pass in the future. For now, we'll finish up today with another passage from Albert of Aachen, which, quite typically, although it emphasizes the unique nature of this army which contained such diversity, quickly switches to a myopic view, focusing only on warlike men. Quote, Ta egregis, it was agreed in a general council by all of these very illustrious men who had been brought together that as it was already a suitable time for the expedition they were waiting for just as they had vowed they should now continue their journey towards the city of Nicaea Gentilis virtus turco oro, imperatori, inuste, eretta, which a heathen force of Turks had wrongly seized from the emperor, suo subjugavit dominio, and subjected to their own authority. Ne dubitandum est cum tot capitaneis primis. You may be sure that with so many first rate leaders, non poco satuiste, there were no few number of followers and inferiors. Servants, maidservants, married and unmarried, men and women of every class. In charge of all these were bishops, abbots, monks, canons, canons, and and priests to teach them and and keep up their courage. The besieged town was completely surrounded by these forces. Next time on History of the Outremer, the siege of Nicaea begins. The Crusaders come face to face with not only the Turks, but also the nature of their arrangement with the Byzantine Emperor, who will turn out to have slightly different goals. See you then.